John 3, 22 through 30, this is the word of Almighty God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You pray with me? Father, again we plead with you to add your spirit and your blessing, your life-changing power to our study of your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Paul Tripp, uh, author, speaker, counselor, tells a story that I think helps us sometimes when we think about how we address Issues and needs in the Christian life. I want to read it to you here. Trip writes, Let's say I have an apple tree in my backyard. And each year its apples are dry, wrinkled, brown, and pulpy. After several seasons, my wife says, It doesn't make any sense to have this huge tree and never be able to eat any apples. Can't you do something? By the way, right there, husbands. A wife telling you to fix the apple tree? Just feels like life, doesn't it? He said, one day my wife looks out the window to see me in the yard carrying branch cutters, an industrial grade staple gun, a ladder, and two bushels of apples. I climb the ladder, cut off all the pulpy apples, and staple shiny red apples onto every branch of the tree. From a distance, our tree looks like it is full of a beautiful harvest. But if you were my wife, what would you be thinking of me at this moment? Wives, I think you can identify with this. If a tree produces bad apples year after year, there's something drastically wrong with its system down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. They also will rot because they're not attached to a life-giving root system. And next spring, I'll have the same problem again. I will not see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. The point is that in personal ministry, 
Much of what we do to produce growth and change in ourselves and others is little more than fruit stapling. It attempts to exchange apples for apples without examining the heart, the root behind the behavior. This is the very thing for which Christ criticized the Pharisees. Change that ignores the heart will seldom transform the life. For a while it may seem like the real thing, but it'll prove temporary and cosmetic. End quote. What happens when we examine our hearts as we look at problems of sin in our lives? If we dig down deep, we often find that the issue we think is the issue is not the issue. Quite often, if we dig down into our hearts, we'll see that there's one particular sin above many others right there, poisoning our roots, causing us to produce bad fruit. And this is true whether your struggle is being short-tempered or being afraid of the opinions of others, whether your problem is that you're too harsh a critic or you're scared to tell the truth when criticism is needed, the root sin at the base of that apple tree is almost always pride. Point of fact, one could make the argument that all of our sin, if you dig deep enough, has an unhealthy dose of pride sprinkled in. When Adam fell in the garden, pride was there, wasn't it? Adam didn't want to submit to God. Adam wanted instead to rule his own life. Adam wanted to make his own boundaries. Adam wanted to be his own boss, his own God. Adam thought he could decide right and wrong as well as God could. That, friends, is pride. Or when Abraham was a coward and asked Sarah to pretend not to be his wife, when he, when he told her, Pretend to be my sister for his protection from the men in the land. Remember those stories? That sin was cowardice. That sin was spousal abuse. But can't you see that the sin of pride is right there? Abraham thought he personally was so valuable that it'd be all right to let Sarah be hurt or used so long as he, the valuable one, was kept safe. That is pride. Or when Simon Peter sinned in Galatia, like we talked about in Sunday school, referencing the ham sandwich incident. Paul calls him out. Pride was right there. Peter had been eating the diet of a Gentile for years until a group of Jewish believers who wanted to say that the food laws were still important moved into town. And when they showed up, Peter began to eat only an Old Testament-style diet. Paul confronted Peter. Paul pointed out that there's no place for a Christian to return to laws that God said were fulfilled and no longer binding on people under the New Covenant. But the sin at the root was pride. Peter acted like he knew the rules better than God did. Peter acted like making the law more strict on some Christians is better. Peter's pride was evident also in his desire to have the people around him think more highly of him. Admire me for my diet. 
What is pride? Pride, and again, you young ones who were participating so well in Sunday school, you need to know this. Pride is when you put yourself at the center of your universe. My wife likes to tell our children, every person's heart has a treasure box. And if you put yourself in that box, that's pride. When we sin pridefully, we focus on ourselves. We might say, look at me and how great I am. That's pride and you all know it, right? But you might get depressed and say, everybody hates me. Do you hear the pride in that? Because if you say everybody hates me, you're assuming, first of all, that everybody has an opinion about you. Can I tell you something? Most people don't think about you that often. I'm going to bet that you can go a whole Monday through Friday without having me cross your mind more than four or five times. Four or five times. <laughs> Sometimes pride shows up in your moralism. I make better rules, stronger rules than even Scripture does. Sometimes pride shows up in lawlessness. I don't need to listen to those rules. I know better. Living in the 21st century, we are bombarded with the sin of pride. If pride is an ungodly focus on yourself, then pride is absolutely everywhere around you. Pride is what has brought about the individualistic nature of our culture. Pride brought about the moral relativism of people saying, hey, what's true for you might not be true for me. It's pride that motivates an individual to express himself without restraint, without respect for others. And in our study for today, we're going to find five sermon points and we'll see a glorious picture of one man, John the Baptist, succeeding against the temptation of pride. We're going to see folks thinking in a worldly way, trying to get John to put himself forward. And we're going to watch as the Baptist makes several declarations that help him not to fall. As we watch John, hopefully we'll find biblical truths to help us to keep our own pride in check. So, point number one, you want to write your points down? Watch out for worldly thinking. Watch out for worldly thinking. Look at verses 22 to 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anan near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. For one last time here in this gospel, John, the gospel writer, turns our attention to the important figure of John the Baptist. I call John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets. Yeah, I know his book, he, they write about him in the New Testament, but the Christ hadn't come 
and died and rose from the grave yet. And the reader of this gospel would know two major truths about John. One, John is important. Two, John is not as important as Jesus. In the prologue, there's two places where John the Baptist is mentioned and where we see John is not the Christ. Verse 8 and verse 15 of John 1. Then in verses 19 to 34 of John chapter 1, we see John's testimony to the Jews of his role. John tells the Jews he came to prepare people to meet God's promised one. But John is clear not to allow anybody to think that he, John, is the Christ. John points to Jesus. John never, ever points to himself. And here as a new scene opens, we find out that the ministry group around Jesus and the ministry group around John the Baptist are both functioning in Judea, the southern part of Israel. I would guess that this is the case from, say, spring of A.D. 27 to the wintertime, maybe seven or eight months here. And both ministries are baptizing. We're going to find out in chapter 4 as a bit of clarification that Jesus doesn't personally baptize people here, but his disciples were doing the baptizing. But these two groups, they're participating in very similar ministries in Judea, but they weren't in exactly the same place either. They were different parts of the river. Now, I mentioned this when I talked about John the Baptist back in chapter 1, and we talked about it in Sunday school because apparently the Lord wants you all to hear this today because I didn't plan the order of that stuff. But the baptism of John was not the same as Christian baptism today. Instead, it was more akin to ceremonial washings that the Jews would do. John the Baptist, and I would say the disciples of Jesus here, were baptizing people as a way to help them to say, I'm repenting of my sin, and I'm getting ready to meet the King. I'm getting ready to meet the Messiah. But once Jesus then dies and rises from the grave, once the new covenant begins, baptism is going to be different. Baptism won't be a ceremony anymore to say, get ready to meet God. Instead, Christian baptism is a ceremony of worship where we say we are united with Jesus. And we say we have been buried with Christ and raised to life with Christ. Christian baptism is a public declaration that you have been saved by Jesus. And I want to add again, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus but have not been baptized as a testimony to your salvation, if you haven't obeyed that command, I would love to help you do that. And we're going to try to do that in the next month or so. Now, during this time of ministry, John the Baptist's followers come to John and they got a little question. It all started with an argument with somebody about ceremonial purification. But once the followers of John begin this conversation, the conversation becomes a temptation to worldly prideful thinking. John's disciples say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Do you notice there might be a little bit of bitterness from John the Baptist's disciples toward John and maybe even toward Jesus? Do you notice they won't even say Jesus' name here? That guy you pointed everybody to? 
But they do know John pointed people to Jesus. Now John's disciples are bothered, though. Jesus is growing in his popularity. Everybody's going to him and not to John. Now, that's an exaggeration, but we understand that what they mean. John's disciples are bothered that people are flocking to Jesus instead of to John. And here is the call for you and me to watch out for worldly thinking because it can sneak in from all sorts of directions. I mean, would you have thought that John's students, the people that John's been preaching to from the beginning, the people who have repeatedly heard John say, I'm not the Christ, that they would have been the ones to miss the point? But not only have they missed the point, they want to make John do something about his sliding popularity. They want John to do something to compete with Jesus. They're presenting John with the temptation of pride. Make, make much of yourself. Don't let yourself be overlooked. Show people that you're just as important as they are. Fight to get yours. Don't let anybody make you look small. Those are the pull of pride on the human heart. These are the worldly thinking that came right into John's kitchen. And these are the types of thoughts you have to battle too. And the first step for you having victory over pride is for you to watch out for it. You've got to be careful because worldly, prideful thinking sneaks in everywhere you look. In this life, you're going to be constantly called on to do things your way, to promote yourself, to trust your reasoning. Our culture pridefully says that if somebody disagrees with you, if they just disagree with your point of view, they're doing you emotional violence. That's pride. Our culture pridefully tells you that your desires are ultimate in determining your identity. And we must be on guard because it is terribly easy to let that kind of thinking get deep into your heart. How do we guard against worldly thinking? Well, watch how John responds to his disciples, and we'll get a few ways out of it. Point number two, understand that all things belong to God. Understand that all things belong to God. Verse 27 says, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So as John the Baptist combats the worldly thinking and the prideful temptation in front of him, John points out first, look, my ministry is a gift from God. John understood that any good gift he ever had, his possessions, his ministry, everything John has is actually owned by God. If John were to look at the success of Jesus and be upset, John would be behaving as though the source of his success is men and not God. But John didn't build his own ministry. It was God who promised the coming of John 
in John's ministry as the forerunner of the Christ. It was the Spirit of God who moved on John as an infant in his mother's womb to make him leap for joy in the presence of the yet unborn Christ. It was God who empowered John to speak hard truths to the religious elite of his day. It was God who made John's words of truth ring out in the desert in such a way that they got the attention of all sorts of people in Israel. All the good, all the success, all the value in John's ministry came from God. So you want to battle worldly thinking? You want to battle pride? If we see that we own nothing, but that everything that we have in life is a gift on loan from God, we can stop clinging to the things we have as if they're ours. We do not own any of the material things in our homes. We don't own our families. We don't own our lives. We don't own our health. So there's no reason for us to cling to any of those as if they're things God doesn't have the right to take from us at any point that best fits his will. Do you even think you own your own body? Because God says you don't. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 read, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When Job lost his possessions, later his health, Job knew those things were not his to start with. Job chapter 121, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible follows Job's statement with an affirmation that in that, Job did not sin with his lips. James tells us in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So Christians, to defeat worldly thinking, and man, I need to th say this to myself. I could have said this to myself the last couple of days. Recognize that everything, all property, all people, all opportunity, all glory belongs to God. You are a steward, not an owner of anything in your possession. You might take care of some of the king's property for a time, but you are not and never will be the king. Your life, your body, your property, your identity all belongs to God and not to you. And this is where it might be a helpful thing. When you go home today, look around. Look at your stuff. Look at the stuff. If you're a young one, look at the stuff in your room. Look at the things you think, I am so glad I have this. Your toys, your games, your bed, your clothes. 
your TV. Look at your family. Look at your employment contract if you got a job. Look at yourself in the mirror and declare to God you acknowledge it all belongs to him. Let me teach you something good right here. How many of you have ever heard of supposed Christians who preach a name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel? You ever heard of that before? The name-it-claim-it-prosperity gospel? That is unbiblical. It dishonors God. It's evil to its core. But I want to teach you guys biblical name-it-and-claim-it. Ready? Name it and claim its God's not yours. Understand all things belong to God. Third point. Know your role in God's kingdom. Know your role in God's kingdom. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. As John the Baptist continues to respond to the men who want to do him to do something about his declining popularity, his, his lack of social media likes, well, John reminds them what his job was to begin with, what his role is. One thing wonderful about John the Baptist is he always was absolutely clear as to his job in the kingdom of God. It was true in chapter 1. It's true here in chapter 3. The Baptist is declaring that he is not the Christ. He's the man sent before the Christ. John tells his disciples they've heard him say this very thing. Years ago, I remember a t-shirt. I still like this one. There's a lot of old Christian t-shirts I do not like anymore. You guys remember the horrible Christian t-shirts of the 90s? <laughs> There's a shirt, though, that I loved. It said, two things I know. There is a God, and you're not him. That's a good shirt right there. It's still true, still helpful. Verse 28 shows us John the Baptist in one sentence doing two important things to guard against pride. John knows his role, and John declares his role. John knows his role, right? He there's no question about this. John knows he's not the Christ. John knows that John's job is as a herald to announce the coming of Christ. Hey guys, he's coming, get ready. John knows it's his job to tell people Jesus is on the way and he calls people to repent of sin so that they can be ready to meet their God. Let me ask you, what's your role? What's your job? What's your role in the kingdom of God? What are you? Understand this. You are not ever the star of the show. I'm not, you're not, you and I, we're not the heroes of the story. The gospel is first and foremost about our God. And all of history is his story. The story of the Lord, the story of his glory, the story of his grace the story of his justice, the story of his holiness, the story of his perfection. History is his story. And when you think about yourself, be careful not to think about yourself as the center of the universe. When things happen, don't first assume that the things that are all happening, they're all happening because they're all about you. 
Don't assume that people ought to be focused on you. Instead, remember who you are. Now, who you are in the kingdom of God is important. Don't mishear me. You are a person created by God in God's image for God's glory. If you know Jesus, you are saved by the grace of God, welcomed into the family of God as an adopted child of God because of Jesus Christ. If you are saved, you are part of the church. That means you're an organ in the body. You're a sheep in the fold. You're a brother or sister to every Christian everywhere. Your role in the kingdom of God is to give all of your life in every way possible to magnify the glory of the God who saved your soul. It is your job to point other people to Jesus. It is your job to tell people the truth about God and the gospel. It is your job to sing the praises of your Lord in gathered worship. It is your job to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It is your job to love your neighbor as yourself. It is your job to live in obedience to God's commands, not so that you earn salvation, but for the purpose of honoring the God who saved you. It is your job to center every breath you breathe, every moment of your life on the majesty of the Lord. And when I say that, I'm not saying you don't get downtime just to rest or to laugh or to enjoy a baseball game. But what I'm saying is, you know that every beat of your heart is about Jesus and not about you. And the other thing John did, he knew his role. John spoke it. Sometimes it's good for folks like you and me to admit the thing we know is true in our hearts. It's good to say to yourself and to others that you are not the center of the universe. It's good for you to remind yourself and others, maybe even out loud, this life is not about you. It's good for you to say, I'm a steward. I'm a servant. I'm a slave of the Lord. That's what my life is about. Knowing and declaring your role in God's kingdom is a powerful way to guard against worldly, prideful thinking. And here comes a surprise. The more you point away from yourself toward the glory of Christ, the more joy you get in your life. Point number four, find joy in pointing to Jesus. Find joy in pointing to Jesus. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So here we get a verbal picture. John pictures himself as the friend of a bridegroom, like the best man in a wedding today. I guess if you want to do this from a girl point of view, you can be the maid of honor. The friend stands with the bridegroom. The friend offers support to the bridegroom. A lot of bridegrooms need courage. I don't know if you know that or not, but they need courage. 
The friend rejoices at the bridegroom's wedding. He celebrates. This is great that the bridegroom's getting married. He takes delight in the blessings that his friend receives. But how horrible would it be for the best man at the wedding to try to put himself in the spotlight on his friend's wedding day? Wouldn't that just drive you nuts? Some of you have probably seen it happen before, by the way. But no true friend of a bridegroom would make himself the center of attention on the day of a friend's wedding. He wouldn't want to. Instead, the desire of the best man, what gives him joy is to make his friend's day as special as it possibly can be. And that picture is a great illustration of how John the Baptist felt toward Jesus' ministry success. It's only proper that Jesus grows in popularity because he's the bridegroom. John understood his role. He's a friend. He's a supporter. Again, two keys under this I think we can gain from it. The first one is know your role. The other is find joy in the glory of Christ. Again, know your role. I think we've been seeing that already. We don't need to talk about that more. But the second is a big deal. Listen to me. We have been created by God. And the purpose for your existence is to glorify God. Our souls, as John Piper likes to say, are most gloriously satisfied when we see and savor the glory of Christ, right? What's the desiring God phrase that he gives? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and we're most satisfied in God when God is most glorified in us. That's pretty good stuff, actually. And that's because when you see Jesus' glory, when you enjoy Jesus' glory, you're doing the very thing for which you were created. Psalm 63, which Jeff read for us, says, when you see the glory of God, that makes you hunger for more of God's glory, and it satisfies your soul as with rich and fat food. Amen. If you want to live Christianity rightly, you got to learn to rejoice when Jesus is glorified, even when the glory of Jesus lowers your status in the eyes of the world. We've got to learn to find joy in the glory of Jesus. Does that seem strange to, to command you to have joy? Does that you, are you sitting there thinking, you can't command me to have joy. Nobody can do that. You can't command my emotions. Guess what? That's precisely what God does in his word. Philippians 3, 1, Paul writes, and hear the command. Finally, my brothers, ready for the command? Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So devote your life for the glory of Christ and find the joy that God both commands and promises. Find joy in pointing to Jesus. Last point. You still with me, by the way? Fifth point. Almost there. Magnify Jesus, not yourself. Magnify Jesus, not yourself. Look at verse 30. He must increase. 
but I must decrease. Finally for today, John says his view of the situation, super simple terms, it is a must. It is imperative. It has to be this way. Jesus must increase. He must be seen as bigger. Jesus must be seen as greater, more important. His popularity has to rise while the opposite must be true of me. I must decrease. This is central to battling a prideful worldview. God must be magnified. I need to become less. The glorious truth of the statement here is in our decreasing, we grow in personal, eternal satisfaction. Though we give up things on this earth, we don't eternally lose. Instead, what we do is we decrease in the eyes of the world and we reap an eternal reward. See, only the glory of God can satisfy your soul. Only God is big enough to fill your heart with wonder, joy, peace, happiness, contentment, security, and satisfaction forever. So for you to magnify God is for you to magnify the very source of your joy. For you to magnify God is for you to dive into a pool of that which will make you most happy. Don't miss that this is part of the enjoyment of God that we get to magnify him. Did you hear me? It is part of your enjoyment of God that you are given the honor of magnifying him. If God did not have you worship him, God would be robbing you of joy. I mean, think about it. It is part of the enjoyment of a great meal that you talk about how great it is. Isn't that true? I mean, when you guys go out to eat, and I hope you do, and you get really good food, don't you talk to the people across the table about it? How would you like it if you had a meal and someone said, here's the rule though, you can't say anything. You can't even say yum. Oh, come on, there's no fun. Not only do I want to like it, I want to force you to try it. That's when I'm having a good time. Have a bite of this. <laughs> no, thanks, Pastor. No, really. It's great. Or imagine, I mean, how much is it a part of, a, of the joy of a sporting event or, or maybe a, a concert or a play that you get to cheer? Right? Here's the thing. C.S. Lewis said it this way. You've got to understand Part of the pleasure is in the praise, isn't it? Is it part of the pleasure looking down at the Grand Canyon and saying, wow? Is it part of the pleasure of looking at a sunset, getting somebody else to look to? Why do you think it is that when we go hiking, my wife takes a photograph every six steps? A, to torment her husband, and B, because part of the pleasure is in the praise, right? God calls us to find pleasure and joy in him, and that includes you praising your God. And to the ears of the world or the ears of the flesh, this is contrary to every bit of logic. There seems to be no way that you and I can gain through decreasing. It seems like a contradictory statement, but God has designed your life this way. Do you want happiness? Do you want satisfaction? Do you want eternal reward and eternal joy? Then decrease 
in order that your view of God would increase, let go of your own interests and magnify the glory of Christ. Then God promises you an eternal reward that will not fade. John the Baptist saw there was a must. The must is the will of God. God's will was that John decrease on earthly popularity scales and he embraced that will. And I would guarantee you, John has been abundantly rewarded for that in glory. Wouldn't you think? John rejoiced on earth as a bridegroom's friend rejoices at his friend's wedding. And John now, I believe, has eternal heavenly rewards for the things that he did. So Christians... Guard against worldly thinking. Understand that all things belong to God. Know your role in God's kingdom. Find joy in pointing to Jesus and magnify Jesus, not yourself. There is great joy in playing the part in God's kingdom that God has designed you to play. Doesn't that make sense? If God shaped you for a role that's going to feel best when you play that role, but Your playing of that part, children too, pay attention to this. Your playing of your role in God's kingdom starts, it has to start with you coming to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? See, God made you for a purpose. But you and me, all of us, we fought against that purpose. We have to be forgiven by God so we can get back to that purpose. And the only way to be forgiven is to turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, and ask him to save your soul. So I invite all of you, come to Jesus today and begin a journey into eternal joy. Let's pray together. Lord God, again we bow. We thank you, Lord for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you've told us why you made us. And we thank you for Jesus who came to die that we might come back and fulfill the role you gave us. God, this world is not about me. God, this world is not about my glory. But you've designed this world that I might have joy in doing what I was created to do. You've designed this world that I might find joy in the honor of Jesus Christ. I would ask you, Lord, today, help all of us to find our purpose our fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Save souls, help us obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.